Welcome back to the Laws of the Game, a soccer law podcast. I'm Kate Porter. I'm joined here again by my co-host, Andrew Wisnowski. And you all might have heard that the 2022 FIFA World Cup is set to kick off in Qatar with the tournament running from November 20th until December 18th, 2022. This World Cup is unique in that it is the first World Cup played in the Northern Hemisphere winter between November and December instead of the traditional June to July program. And it is also the last World Cup that will be the 32-team format, where in 2026, it's going to move to 48. It's the first World Cup to be held in the Middle East. Qatar is about the size of the state of Connecticut and has the same population as the state of Connecticut, which I found very interesting. And in honor of the tournament coming up, we're going to bring you a primer on the World Cup in an episode we have lovingly called The Road to the World Cup. (laughs) So let's jump right in. So the goal for today is we're going to take you through a bit of the history of the World Cup, and then we'll talk about the bidding and hosting process for the FIFA World Cup, some sponsorship issues as well, and then finally we'll conclude with how teams qualify for the tournament. For the purpose of today's podcast, where we're focusing on the men's World Cup, but much of this information also applies to the women's World Cup and also to the youth World Cups. The FIFA World Cup is played every four years. Each four-year cycle is called a World Cup cycle. The first World Cup took place in 1930. 13 nations participated. The FIFA had selected Uruguay as the host of the tournament for the first tournament. Because of the cost at the time of sending teams to South America, many European teams declined to participate. They all had to get on boats. It was a two-week trip. Not great. So eventually, Belgium, France, Romania, and Yugoslavia were convinced to attend. They were joined by Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, Brazil, Bolivia, Peru, Paraguay, Mexico, and the United States. So yeah, the United States participated in the World Cup before before England did, before Germany did. So it's interesting little fact. Best country. <laughs> exactly. The 1930 tournament was also the US's best ever finish. We came in third place after losing to Argentina in the semifinals. Uruguay won, beating Argentina 4-2 in front of 93,000 people. So thanks, England and Germany, for not showing up because we did great. <laughs> Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. (laughs) The World Cup was held in 1934 in Italy, 1938 in France, and then you have a break. So in 1936, Germany had applied to host the 1942 World Cup, but due to the growing conflict in Europe at the time, FIFA didn't decide on a host nation for the 1942 World Cup and eventually just decided to cancel the tournament altogether, which was probably a good call. And then FIFA was unable to organize the World Cup at all in 1946 due to financial concerns. So we come back together in 1950. It's the first World Cup since the 1938 World Cup. And this time Brazil hosted. The tournament was the first time that the British home nations participated in the event. So England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. They'd previously withdrawn from FIFA actually in 1920 due to protests about having to play against countries with which they were at war. So then the 1950 tournament, the United States faced off against England. This is probably one of the most historic U.S. victories, just like be playing England in just a few weeks. And in 1950, the U.S. actually beat England one to nothing. So hopefully 
we're getting that result this year too. <laughs> and the one nothing upset of England is viewed to be one of the biggest upsets in World Cup history. You know, at the time, England was already starting to really professionalize its game and had a really developed soccer or football, if you're from that part of the world, infrastructure. The U.S. was lagging behind. Soccer was viewed as a foreigner's game in the U.S. And so there really wasn't that focus and the number of athletes that were playing weren't a lot. So needless to say, you know, the U.S. national team has come quite a long way since 1950. So because we've got a big American audience here, we'll just skip straight to 1994, the first time the U.S. hosted the World Cup. In 1988, the U.S. was selected by FIFA as a host for the 94 World Cup. As a condition of receiving the rights to host the tournament, FIFA required the U.S. Soccer Federation to establish a Division I Men's Professional Soccer League, which the U.S. hadn't had since the NASL had folded previously. This led to the formation of Major League Soccer, which officially began play in 1996, two years after the World Cup was held. We'll talk about MLS in later episodes in much greater detail. It's a very unique league. It does a lot of very unique things, both in the soccer world and in the North American sports world. So the 94 tournament was held between June 17 and July 17 of 1994. Matches were played in nine cities across the country. The tournament ended up being one of the most financially successful World Cups due in large part to the fact that the matches were all played in existing stadiums, something that we'll see in the 2026 World Cup. And the large capacity of those stadiums was also key. If there's one thing that America is known for is building very large places to go watch sports. They were playing a lot of their matches in college football stadiums. So like the Rose Bowl, the Cotton Bowl. They played, I believe, also at University of Michigan Stadium, if I'm not mistaken, the Big House. So, they, I mean, they're not playing, they played in Foxborough, they played at RFK in DC as well. But, you know, a lot of the really big capacity stadiums, as many of you may already know, they're not the NFL stadiums. The largest stadiums in the US tend to be college stadiums. And so that's where these games were played. Yeah. And so the third place game and the final were played in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, and more than 90,000 people attended those matches, which is massive for a World Cup. Mm -hmm. It was a great tournament. I remember vividly, I think it was the, probably the first tournament I really remember as a kid and watching Brazil win it in and really kind of amazing, some tragic events that happened around the World Cup as well, particularly Andres Escobar. If you've ever never watched that 30 for 30, it's quite compelling, I guess, or interesting and also tragic. The But the 94 World Cup, I think, marked like a real turning point for soccer in the United States. People began to take an interest in the sport. This is also driven by the fact that the launch of the MLS and also in the late 90s, we're starting to get international soccer broadcasts in the United States. Not regularly, but I, you know, I remember in the late 90s watching Manchester United. That's how I became a Manchester United fan was because it was the first team that you could ever either see clips of or full matches on TV. Every once in a while, you'd get one. And so it was really the first team I remember ever being marketed in the U.S. to the U.S. market, an English team. I think a lot of Liverpool fans probably started around the same time because I remember Liverpool mentoring that brand entering the U.S. market around the same time as well. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because 1994 and even up until the early 2010s, being a soccer fan in the United States was a lot different 
than it is now. You couldn't stream all of the league games. A lot of times you had to watch them on delay on a premium Fox soccer channel. And so for a lot of Americans, these big FIFA international tournaments outside of watching MLS were sort of your your biggest shot at getting to watch soccer games. And I think all of my early memories of watching soccer came from the 1994 World Cup and the subsequent World Cups after. And it was always a big deal in my household. I remember watching the 2002 World Cup when we were at the beach in the Jersey Shore and we would watch the games in the morning and then go to the beach it's crazy how things changed in their sort of soccer 24-7 now. Yeah, I remember. So the 2002 World Cup was held in Japan and South Korea. And because of the time difference, I remember getting up at like four o'clock in the morning to catch matches. And then we had to go to school because I think we, we were still in school for part of the tournament. And I remember like my teachers showing the very late game because, you know, at that point, I was in high school and we had TVs in every room. And so they would turn on the game. And so as school was getting ready to start for the day, you could watch the tail end of the latest game. That's wild. I don't think my school would ever do that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why, but we did live in a community where a lot of people played soccer. So I think there was that interest. But every year in each World Cup cycle, I think we're seeing more and more people becoming really interested in the World Cup. The popularity of the tournament has grown in the US and Americans now are consistently the past few World Cups have been one of the largest group of match ticket holders of people who travel to the tournament and attend matches. The US usually behind the the host nation is number two or number three groups of people who are buying tickets and going to the matches. And this is consistent no matter the location. So that's a very brief surface level history of the World Cup. But we want to talk to you a little bit about the bidding and hosting process for how host countries are selected for the World Cup. And we'll we'll focus now on the 2022 World Cup, but some of this applies and some of it is slightly different for the 2026 FIFA World Cup. So in January 2009, so we're talking about 13 years ago, almost 14, FIFA opened up the bidding process for the 2018 and 2022 FIFA World Cups. This is the first time that FIFA would conduct, first and probably last, would conduct bidding processes for two successive World Cups simultaneously. And so a number of countries submitted interest in bidding for the World Cup. This included the United States, Russia, England, Australia, Japan, Qatar. There was a joint bid from Spain and Portugal, a joint bid from Belgium and the Netherlands. And there were other countries that expressed an intention to bid as well. So over the course of about a two-year period, just under two years, the Bidding Nation prepared a bid book, which is a book that details the country's vision for hosting a World Cup. It features information such as stadiums and host cities, sustainability, and the legacy that they that the host country hopes to build from the World Cup. And then FIFA also conducts inspections of each bidding nation. So they had an inspection team that traveled to all the different bidding nations, visited several stadium sites, met with leaders in those countries, and discussed the vision and the potential for hosting the World Cup and then prepared a report. In December of 2010, so the FIFA Executive Committee, which if you listen to the last episode or last two episodes, is the name for the former executive body or akin to a board of directors of FIFA. The Executive Committee chose Russia as a host of the 2018 FIFA World Cup and Qatar to host the 2022 FIFA World Cup. After this bidding process concluded, 
FIFA underwent a number of relatively major governance reforms. And so today, the the host nation of the FIFA World Cup is actually selected by the FIFA Congress and not the FIFA Council, which is the renamed and expanded name for the FIFA Executive Committee. I remember because I was in law school and I was doing my master's very close to when this bid happened. And we actually got to see Qatar's pitch video. And it's incredible. It's really well done. If on the surface, you didn't know much about the bidding process, if you watched that video, you would be fully bought in. It was funny because since they bid so far out from the date of the actual World Cup, they could sort of get away with, we'll handle those issues later sort of questions because it was a decade away. So with Qatar, it was the question of heat, right? Because it's in the middle. It's sort of, it's a desert. It's very hot all the time. And they were like, in their pitch, they basically said, well, in 10 years, we'll figure out how to air condition stadiums. Like that's enough time to figure that out. And people were just like, yeah, sure. In a decade, that's enough time. We'll figure it out. And since then, the World Cup has been pushed to December. So query as to whether or not they figured it out. They do have a very advanced air conditioning system in a couple of their stadiums, but it clearly could not keep the venue cool enough to field matches in the middle of summer in Qatar. So I think their concern also was moving fans from hotel sites to the stadium, as opposed to, I think the technology is there that they could have ensured, you know, 75 degree temperature on the pitch. But when you're moving, I think FIFA's concern was you're moving fans from stadiums to hotels and you can't air condition the whole country. What? You can't, (laughs) you can't, what? That being said, I think people are in for a world of shock when some matches are going to be played in Houston and Dallas in the summer. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. And those stadiums will not be air conditioned. Well, Dallas is in a dome, so that's good. But Houston, that's going to be hot. It's going to be hot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they do it in MLS, so yeah, they do internet. They do the Gold Cup. It's going to be fine. <laughs> so to get back on track, once FIFA selects a host nation for the tournament, They enter into a hosting agreement with that country. The host agreement is signed by the local organizing committee, the LOC, for shorthand, which is the organization in that country responsible for organizing and putting on the World Cup. And the hosting agreement is also agreed upon with the national association that governs sport in the country. So for the Qatar World Cup, the parties for the hosting agreement would be the Qatar Federation, the Qatari Local Organizing Committee, and FIFA for the 2026 World Cup. It would be the Local Organizing Committee, the three national associations that are involved, US, Canada, and Mexico, and FIFA. This hosting agreement covers a wide range of topics, including the number of stadiums involved, the size and requirements for the pitches, the number of training sites available for teams, accommodations for FIFA during the tournament, and creating a headquarters for the event while the event is taking place for FIFA. There's a lot of other agreements that are involved that the LOC is required and responsible for securing for FIFA, which include the host city declarations, which is a declaration signed by the host city that it will support FIFA and the local organizing committee by promoting sustainability and adopting the necessary measures, ordinances, zoning requirements, and laws to carry out the World Cup. 
the stadium agreements for the venues that are being used for the World Cup, training camps for all the teams that are going to take place in the World Cup, and hotel agreements with all the hotels in each city to provide official accommodations for the tournament. Right. Kind of scratches the surface. There's thousands of agreements that are signed that go into preparing for and carrying out the World Cup. Another series of agreements that are extremely important to hosting the World Cup are the government guarantees. These are a series of agreements between the government of the host nation and FIFA, where the government will provide assurances or guarantees that they will support FIFA and adopt the necessary measures or enact laws required to carry out the World Cup. And this is actually an interesting one to me. Prior to the 2014 FIFA World Cup, which was held in Brazil, Brazil had a law on the books that stated that you were that prohibited the sale of alcohol at soccer stadiums. And because Brazil has had an issue in the past with ban violence, and so they have dry stadiums. But one of FIFA's main sponsors at the time was Budweiser, a beer. And so FIFA viewed it as very important to have alcohol sales in the stadium. And so as a condition of hosting the tournament, FIFA required Brazil to change its law, at least temporarily for the duration of the World Cup, to allow for the sale of beer in the stadiums. And so <laughs> the FIFA had enough sway to require the country of Brazil to change its entire national legislation, at least temporarily, just so that it could host the World Cup. And the government guarantees also cover other topics. For example, there is a government guarantee ensuring that visas are issued to FIFA, the competing teams and the various delegations and other people traveling to the country for the World Cup. There's a guarantee that guaranteeing FIFA and also the participating national associations, the main FIFA broadcaster and FIFA service providers, guaranteeing them a tax exemption for money earned in connection with the World Cup. So FIFA is not taxed on its earnings in or will not be taxed on its earnings in Qatar in connection with the, the 2022 FIFA World Cup. It won't be taxed in the United States or Canada or Mexico in 2026. The government has to provide a guarantee that work permits will be issued as needed, that it will take measures to ensure the security at the tournament and also protecting commercial rights. And that's a big one. Yeah. And so a lot of countries have passed what are known as major event laws that basically set out and meet these requirements in the event that a major tournament takes place. Other countries have decided they won't pass these laws and therefore probably won't host a major event like the World Cup or the Olympics. But that is a main way for many countries to sort of lay the groundwork to be able to comply with these requirements is to basically carve out laws in advance that sort of establish um, these scenarios so they don't have to do it like it was done in Brazil, where they have to lobby their legislature to get the laws passed ad hoc as the tournament is coming through. So I think one of the more interesting parts of this World Cup process is the protection of commercial rights during the tournament. It's extremely important to FIFA. There are a number of sponsors for the World Cup that FIFA wants to protect the value of that sponsorship and the exclusivity of that sponsorship. There are seven, and each of these sponsors have different levels, essentially. So there are seven partners who sponsor all of FIFA's events. These are Adidas, Coca-Cola, Wanda Group, Hyundai, Kia Motors, Qatar Airways, Qatar Energy, and Visa. There are also seven World Cup sponsors who only sponsor World Cup events, which include Budweiser, 
Baiju, which is a technology company, Crypto.com, which is a cryptocurrency platform, Hyson, which sells electronics and home appliances, McDonald's, the Menginiu Dairy, which sells dairy products, and Vivo, which sells customer and consumer electronics. There's a third tier to the FIFA sponsorships, which are regional sponsors that solely sponsor the specific World Cup. These regional sponsors include Oridu, which is a telecommunications company, Qatar National Bank. I think that's a little self-explanatory what they do. Frito-Lay, they make the chips. Claro, which sells mobile phones and a number of others. One of the key provisions in the hosting agreement requires LOCs to deliver to FIFA a controlled area determined by FIFA around the stadium where the host city will be required to enforce FIFA's commercial rights. Basically, what this means is that it's the responsibility of the host city and the LOC to police and prevent unauthorized advertising, ambush marketing, and commercial availability for the sponsors within those protected zones. If you've heard the term clean stadium for UEFA events, it's essentially that, but in a radius around where the venues are located, where only the FIFA-related sponsors will have the ability to advertise and promote their business. In Russia, the controlled area was a two-kilometer radius, which is about a mile, a little over a mile, which if that is in... New York City, that is like most of New York. And it basically just sets up this area, which is like a very clean experience for fans, which it's very clear, like what's happening and where you are and what's going on. So it's not just necessarily for sponsors. It's also just for the event and the atmosphere around the event. But it is also a massive benefit for sponsors as well. And when you mentioned the clean stadium, there's an obligation that the host city or the host site delivers the stadium to FIFA or UEFA if it's the Champions League with any internal signage that they have for other sponsors stripped or covered. And that includes stadium like commercial names, right? So if SoFi Stadium is going to be one of the stadiums used in the 2026 World Cup. So if SoFi is not a sponsor... It's going to have to go by a different name when they're discussing, when it's being discussed as one of the host venues. Right. And there's a notable example. So the Allianz Arena, which is where Bayern Munich plays in Munich, when Germany hosted the 2006 World Cup, it was referred to on broadcasts as, I think, FIFA World Cup Stadium Munich because they didn't want to refer to Allianz and give basically free publicity to Allianz, which was not a World Cup sponsor, Mm. I believe, at the time. So. They, at least for the tournament, yeah. change what they referred to the stadium as. Yeah. And depending on the and on the naming rights agreement, the owners of those stadiums may have to compensate those sponsors for not being able to use those names during the tournament, correct? Yeah. I mean, I assume now because stadium rights naming deals are becoming more more commonplace, there's probably a provision in those agreements that that deals with events like the World Cup where you can't use stadium naming rights. So again, delivering a clean stadium and a clean radius, it's common in other hosting agreements for other events as well. So for example, in 2010, I was living in Madrid and Madrid was hosting the 2010 UEFA Champions League final at the Santiago Bernabeu, which is Real Madrid Stadium. And one of the things that UEFA did at the time is they had their marketing and events production entity 
come into the city a week or two before and recruit a whole bunch of volunteers to help with the different aspects of the game. So I worked the Women's Champions League final, which was actually held in, at Hetafe Stadium just outside of Madrid, I think the day before the Men's Champions League final. And so I worked that game and helped fan access and things like that. Another one of my friends, she decided to work in ambush marketing and she walked around with someone from Match all day for like two or three days straight, just looking for instances around the stadium where people were either selling unauthorized or unlicensed products, or there were any other issues with potential ambush marketing. So this is pretty common. UEFA handles it basically in-house or with their own marketing arm, but the World Cup, that onus kind of falls on the host city and the host stadium. Ambush marketing is a real serious concern for FIFA. The sponsors spend a lot of money (laughs) to sponsor the event. We're talking about collectively over a billion dollars. And so the FIFA wants to ensure that those sponsors, their rights are being protected. But what you find is there are brands that will try to do ambush marketing. Ambush marketing is a term, everyone has a slightly different definition, but when brands who are not associated with an event try to affiliate themselves with that event. So there's a memorable event that occurred at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. So there's 36 female supporters showed up to the Netherlands versus Denmark match wearing these like bright orange mini dresses and they were close to the field. And it turns out that they were advertising or going to be used in a promotional video or promotion for Bavaria beer, which is a Dutch beer, not the World Cup sponsored. The World Cup sponsor at the time was is Budweiser. And so these women were removed from the stadium. Two out of the 36 women were arrested. And then FIFA actually ended up levying charges against Bavaria for the ambush marketing. So, I mean, it's a big deal. They take it really seriously. And it's something that's important in order to protect the commercial rights of a sporting event. So we've talked about how a country comes to host the event, but let's talk a little bit about how the teams qualify. So Andrew mentioned earlier, there's 32 teams that are participating in the 2022 FIFA World Cup, or at least the final tournament of the World Cup. So 32 teams enter, one team leaves, is crowned the champion. And this is, again, the last 32-team tournament. In 2026, the tournament will be expanded to 48 teams. And that's the tournament that's going to be held collectively by the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. So the first team to qualify for the tournament is obviously the host nation. The host nation is not going to not take part in the tournament. So Qatar was the first team to qualify for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. According to the media release by FIFA in 2017, they stated that in the event of co-hosting the number of host countries to qualify automatically will be decided by the FIFA Council. That That is directly related to these multi-host bids. So it's unclear whether all three of the host nations for the 2026 World Cup, US, Canada, and Mexico will receive automatic berths for the 2026 FIFA World Cup. I would think it would be strange if one of the hosts was not given an automatic berth, especially because of how much they're expanding the tournament for that year, but it really depends on the FIFA Council on that. Yeah, I will add for the 32 team World Cup, you know, CONCACAF only gets four and a half spots, I believe. Mm-hmm. So if it was a, still a 32 team tournament, you would only have one and a half teams that would be able to qualify from CONCACAF, which would be potentially unfair. But for the fact that they're now expanding this to 48, so CONCACAF will have more qualification spots, or at least in recent history, the Mexico, United States, and Canada at least in this past four-year cycle, have been the strongest teams, bar none, or hands down in CONCACAF. So I think the risk of it being supremely unfair (laughs) is minimized. Right. 
So for the 2022 World Cup, the other 31 teams are distributed amongst the continental confederations. We talked about this a little bit in the previous episodes of the pod, but it's all divided as follows. UEFA Europe receives 13 slots. They receive the most out of all of the continental confederations. CAF, which covers Africa, gets five spots. AFC, which is Asia, gets four and a half spots. OFC Oceania gets half of a spot. CONCACAF gets, as we said, gets three and a half spots. And Common Bowl, which is South America, gets four and a half spots. These teams that qualify in these half spots then compete in an intercontinental continental knockout game. It's essentially a playing game similar to the playing games for the NCAA tournament. So that sort of explains how like half a team can qualify and how it's listed like that for the confederation seeds. Yeah. And I think I misspoke earlier. I said four and a half spots, but yeah, CONCACAF in the 32 team format gets three and a half spots. So if you had three automatic hosts qualifying, if you were in a 32 team format, it only the other countries in CONCACAF would only get half a potentially only half a qualifying spot. So the other thing that always jumps out at me is again, UEFA gets 13 spots where CAF or the AFC get five and four and a half, and they have a lot of members. So again, I I think you see that the World Cup still is very, in the world of international soccer, still very Eurocentric. I mean, granted, if you look at the world rankings, apart from South America, I think that the top teams typically come from Europe. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that some of the best teams would come from Europe and they want to give them more spots because if it's truly going to be the most competitive tournament, you want to have the best teams there. And again, these numbers that Andrew just mentioned, these are based off that 32-team format. The numbers will change for the 2026 World Cup, where it expands to 48 teams. Right. And just to circle back on the slot distribution, CAF is really, in my opinion, the federation that gets the most hard done for the World Cup. They have probably, outside of Europe, just based off of South America being so small, have the highest number of like top-level teams, national teams. And they only get five spots. So this year, Egypt, which was in the final of the CAF Continental Tournament, didn't make it, was knocked out by the other team that was in the final, Senegal. And this happens constantly with Africa. And it's kind of a bummer because there's a a bunch of incredible teams and players that miss out because of that. But in that vein, each confederation sets up their own qualification process. So each one is a little different and has its own quirks. But there are also similarities that you can glean from the different processes to get an idea of how it works. UEFA will start there because they have the most slots. There's 55 national teams eligible to compete in the World Cup from UEFA. There is a group stage that basically ran from March to November 2021. There were 10 groups of five to six teams The winner of each group automatically qualified. So that's 10 of their qualifications there. And then the remaining three slots were determined by the runners-up of each group, plus the two best-ranked group winners of the 2020-2021 UEFA Nations League that weren't in the top two of the qualifying groups. So that is 12 teams. Those teams were then seeded into three four-team mini tournaments that took place in 2022. Those mini tournaments 
were set up in a semifinal plus final format. So a final four and then a final. Um, the win- winners of the semifinal would then move on to the final. And then the three winners of those finals made up the last three teams that would then go with the other 10 to the World Cup from UEFA. Yep. So as you see, you know, UEFA is not starting its World Cup qualifying until really until the year before a World Cup. So if you're looking at a four-year cycle, the first couple of years after a World Cup, generally in UEFA, they're qualifying for and hosting the Euros, which is their continental championship. And then they focus on World Cup qualifying. Whereas CAF, so that's the confederation from Africa, it has five slots and it's 54 national teams that are eligible, began the qualifying process for the 2022 World Cup in September of 2019. So just a little over a year after the 2018 World Cup, it started the qualifying cycle. And that first round was in September 2019. In that process, the bottom 28 ranked teams in CAF were matched up against opposing teams. Then they play a two-legged tie, so a home and away series. The 14 winners of that home and away series then move on to the second round. In this qualifying cycle, the second round was delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So it was supposed to be held, second round was supposed to be held from March to October 2021, got moved to September to November. Um, And there, there were the 14 winners from the first round, plus the remaining teams, those 40 teams were separated into 10 groups of four. And then a third round was held from March 25th, 29th of this year. And each group winner was drawn into into five two-legged ties, again, home and away. The winner of each tie then qualifies for the World Cup. So that's how Africa qualifies. The Asian Football Confederation, the AFC, it has four and a half slots. So in the AFC, there's 46 national associations that were eligible to qualify for the World Cup. It had a similar process to CAF. So there's a first round. This is in June 2019. So this is basically a full calendar year after the 2018 World Cup. The 12 bottom-ranked teams played, again, two-legged tie home and away. Then there was a second round from the end of May to mid-June of 2021. And the six winners from the first rounds plus the 34 remaining national teams were drawn into eight groups of five. This also served as the qualifying rounds for the 2023 AFC Asian Cup Finals. So Qatar actually took place in this tournament, even though it had already qualified for the World Cup because it needed to qualify for the AFC Asian Cup. So the seven group winners plus the five best runner-ups move on. So you have 12 teams. So Qatar won their group. So that's why there's only seven. The third round, September 2nd, 2021 to March 29th, 2022. So they have a longer third round period. There's the 12 advancing teams from the second round put into two six-team groups, and the group runners and the the runners-up qualify for the World Cup. And then there was a fourth round on June 7th, 2022. So the teams finishing third in the groups enter into a single elimination playoff. The winner advances then to the intercontinental playoff against the opponent from Commonwealth. And when we're talking about the period in which these matches are held, the international soccer calendar is very congested. And so FIFA actually has... um, something they call throughout the year called international break. And so there are weeks throughout the year where the domestic leagues will stop play, they release their players to go play for their national teams. They're called and the national teams will hold host games, whether they're competitive matches or friendly matches. When we're talking about a six month period where these matches are held, it's probably really only like three weeks. Um, It's just at different intervals throughout the season. So the FIFA match calendar is also very important to, to how these qualification matches are held. Exactly. And in addition to that, during those windows, teams will also play 
a friendly or two to fill them out. So there, there's a lot of instances where there will be like two, they'll play two qualifiers and a friendly. And there's also international tournaments that are mixed in there as well. UEFA has their Nations League. CONCACAF has their Nations League. So sometimes your head can spin with all the different qualification rounds that the teams are playing in at different times. Moving on to the OFC, which is the smallest of the national associations. And I just remember, just to circle back, a lot of the timing on these was strongly affected by COVID. And a lot of qualifications had to be pushed back. And luckily, sort of a benefit of the fact that the World Cup was happening in December versus June is that this gave a little leeway and a little space for qualifications to get rescheduled and pushed back due to COVID. So that was sort of a a silver lining and and bringing the World Cup to December and November versus June and July, because that would have been really hairy and difficult to fit in all the qualification matches. So moving on to the OFC, they're the smallest confederation by far. They have nine um, eligible or 11 eligible nations. Only nine teams took part. The qualification for OFC was really affected by COVID. They wound up playing their entire tournament in March of 2022 between the 17th and the 30th. The first round, the two lowest teams played were supposed to play in a single elimination match. Tonga withdrew due to COVID. And then the Cook Islands were seeded into the second round automatically. In the second round, the remaining eight teams are split into two groups. Winners and runners-up of those groups moved to the third round. There was also a big COVID outbreak with the Cook Islands. So they did not take part in the second round. And then Vanuatu as well had a major COVID outbreak. So Group A was two teams, the Solomon Islands and Tahiti, and Group B was New Zealand, New Caledonia, Fiji, and Papua New Guinea. So the third round is a semifinal and final format. So the four winners and runner-up runners-up play each other. The winner of Group A plays the runner-up of Group B, etc. The winners of each semifinal move on to the final, and the winner of the final goes to play in the intercontinental playoff against the CONCACAF opponent. That the winner of OFC's qualification is almost always New Zealand, and they always wind up pairing up against a CONCACAF opponent for the intercontinental playoff. So if we move to CONCACAF, that's our region, it's the best region. There are 35 World Cup eligible nations. It was originally set to run from September 2020 to September 2021. But COVID made all of the pushed back all of the qualification rounds. Round one happened from March to June in 2021. Teams ranked six and below, so six to 35, were drawn into six groups of five. Each team played each member of their group once. Group winners then advanced to the next round. Round two happened on June 12th and 15th of 2021. Group winners of round one were drawn into three two-legged ties. So those six teams played in three two-legged ties. The three winners of those two-legged ties 
then move to the next round. The final round, we tried to call it the Ocho, maybe the Octo, was September 21 to March 2022. I say the Ocho or the Octo because it used to be called the Hex because it was a hexagonal tournament with six teams. But now for this running of qualification, there were eight teams in this final round. So that's why we go with a little clunkier name of the Ocho. So this final round is really unique to CONCACAF and sort of mirrors South America's entire qualifying format, where the eight final teams play in a round-robin tournament. Each team plays the other home and away. The top three teams at the end of the octagonal tournament automatically qualify, and then the fourth team enters into the intercontinental playoff against the winner of OFC, so uh, New Zealand. Perfect. So quickly hitting on common ball. So it's got four and a half spots. There's only 10 eligible nations in common ball. It's the smallest confederation. The qualifying there was intended to start in March and September of 2020. Again, due to COVID got pushed. And then the qualification round took a pause because there were restrictions on international travel. And so a lot of the players who are playing for club teams in Europe weren't able to travel to South America for qualification because of restrictions in returning back to their European countries to play with their domestic club team. This is a big major issue with Edison Cavani when he was playing for Manchester United. And he missed a lot of time with United because he was traveling to Uruguay to play with, for the Uruguay national team. And then he would come back and have to quarantine. All 10 of each of the teams play each other home and away. Top four teams qualify. The fifth team enters into the intercontinental playoff with the AFC opponent. And again, so we've talked about these intercontinental playoffs at the half slots. The playoffs this year took place in Qatar on June 13th and 14th of 2022. It was also used as a dry run for some of the stadiums for the World Cup to help the organizers get ready for the event and to iron out any kinks that might exist with the stadium or the process they have. This is a single elimination playoff match, and the winners will qualify for the World Cup. So it was an a-, a match AFC versus Guamabal, Australia versus Peru, Australia won. And so Australia qualified for the World Cup. And then CONCACAF versus the OFC. So it was New Zealand versus Costa Rica. Costa Rica won. So now Costa Rica will be in Qatar in a couple of weeks for the World Cup. So that brings us to the end of the special episode of Laws of the Game focusing on the World Cup. We hope this has been useful to you. We hope it's been interesting. It's certainly interesting to us, as soccer nerds. <laughs> we also hope that you will tune into the FIFA World Cup this November and December and go USA. Go USA. The Velawood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD, based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawoodlaw.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at velawoodlaw.com.